Father in heaven, thank you, Lord, for your goodness and love. Thank you that you brought us together here today. Bless me as I bring this message today. May the Holy Spirit's power be upon me, and uh, may all glory go to your name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, today's sermon is the very first one, really, in a series on uh, 1 Corinthians 13. It's just kind of an introduction today to the chapter to help us get the message of the chapter. And I'm going to be talking about three prophets today. Actually, I'm going to be talking about Jonah. I'm going to be talking about the Apostle Paul, and I'm going to be talking about the disciple John. Now, Jonah was a prophet to northern uh, Israel, to the northern ten tribes there of Israel after the breakoff between Judah and, uh, and Israel. And uh, Jonah lived about 800 B.C. And uh, we believe that the authorship of the book of Jonah, though some would question it, we believe that Jonah actually was the author of it, and he wrote it in third person about his own experience. Uh, Seventh-day Adventists believe that it's something that's historical, not allegorical. And we know that Jesus looked at the book of Jonah that way, that he saw it as something that is historical, something that actually happened. In, in Matthew 12, 40, Jesus said, as Jonah was three days in the in the belly of the earth, he said, he said then the son of man, or, or he was in the belly of the fish, I mean, then so the son of man would be in the belly of the earth for three days. So Jesus believed it literally happened that he was swallowed by a fish, some kind of a huge sea creature, and it could possibly be a whale, had swallowed Jonah. You say, well, how can that happen? Well, it has happened. 1927 in the Falkland Islands, there was a man swallowed by a whale, and he was, believe it or not, three days in the belly of that whale, and he came out with his skin bleached white, and he was delirious for a while, but he actually came out okay. That's a true story. Jonah was asked by God, we know, to go to Nineveh and preach to this heathen city, calling them to repentance. And uh, have you ever had an experience where you really were asked to do something, but you already knew the result of it before you ever did it, and you didn't think it was good. Well, this was kind of what was going on here. Jonah, this, this powerful preacher and powerful prophet has brought many, many fellow Israelites to repentance, but this is different. These are the Assyrians. They are horribly cruel. They have had the Israelites in oppression for decades now. And, you know, he's saying, God, you see how terrible they are? Just burn them up. <laughs> Don't send me to preach to these wretches. And so Jonah rebels, and we know that he was trying to get out and go to Tarshish, got on a ship, and uh, make a long story short, he ends up in the belly of this huge sea creature. And while he's in the belly of that fish, he has a revelation a revelation of the goodness of God. Let's turn together to Jonah 2, and let's look uh, beginning at verse 6. Jonah 2 and verse 6. Talking about his experience as he's in the water, and he says, I went down to the moorings of the mountains. The earth with its bars closed behind me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. He sees there's salvation. God has brought him through this animal. When my soul fainted within me, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer went up to you into your holy temple. Those who regard worthless idols forsake their own mercy, but I will sacrifice to you with the voice of thanksgiving. I'll pay what I have vowed 
salvation is of the Lord. So he sees this as the Lord's way of saving him from drowning. This prophet of God sees that God still wants to use him and didn't intend for him to drown. So he has faith things are going to be all right. And sure enough, he's vomited out onto dry land. God waits and God leads this fish to dry ground and then vomits him out. And here he is. He's given the very same commission all over again. Go to the Ninevites and preach to them. So he complies this time and he goes and he preaches that it's going to be 40 days and they're going to be overthrown. There's no ifs, ands, or buts about it. They're going to be overthrown because of their wickedness in 40 days. That's all the time they have left. And he's noticing an impact, an unexpected impact of his preaching, seeing that he was preaching to these heathen people. He sees that there's humility going on, that people are humbling their hearts before God. They're putting on sackcloth and ashes, and it goes all the way up to the top of the, of the, of, uh, the city here, the king of Nineveh is putting on sackcloth, taking off his royal robe and putting on sackcloth and he's sitting in a pile of ashes. Something that was unexpected and then Jonah waits for the 40 days to pass and nothing happens. God relented of his purpose and Jonah is not happy. In fact, he is angry, downright angry about it. He had waited for the fire to fall and it didn't happen. And then verse, chapter 4 and verse 2, he prayed to the Lord and said, Ah, oh, Lord, was not this what I said when I was still in my country? Therefore I fled previously to Tarshish. For I know that you're a gracious and merciful God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, one who relents from doing harm. So he, he's fed up with the Assyrian oppression. He's seen it happen year after year. He's waiting for God. He's been waiting for God to avenge the wrongs that they've suffered for so long and God hasn't done it. God has just been so patient with them and so caring and so loving and, and Jonah says to God, I was afraid this would be the outcome of my preaching. I was afraid of that. You know, I, I go preach to them and what's it make me look like when I go preach to the, uh, uh, these people and then it doesn't happen. I make a prediction it doesn't happen. I look like a false prophet. I was afraid this would happen. And then verse three, he goes a little further. Therefore now, Lord, please take my life from me, for it's better for me to die than to live. He just wants to die. And then verse 5. So Jonah went out of the city, sat on the east side of the city. There he made himself a shelter and sat under it in the shade that he might see what would become of the city. So he's hoping, even yet, that God will see that the repentance isn't really true repentance and they'll be destroyed. And then verse 6, we see something of the mercy of God. The Lord God prepared a plan and made it come up over Jonah. Some of your translations are going to say gourd, which is what we really believe it was. And some of them can grow incredibly fast in those uh, tropical countries. That it might be shade for his head to deliver him from his misery. So Jonah was very grateful for the plant. So we see the mercy of God that he comes up and shades Jonah. He thinks about Jonah, shades him from the sun. But then in verse 7 and 8, we see the withdrawal of God's mercy. But as morning dawned the next day, God prepared a worm and it so damaged the plant that it widow, withered. And it happened when the sun arose, God prepared a vehement east wind and the sun beat on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. Then he wished death for himself and said, it's better for me to die than to live. So Jonah's given a taste of what it feels like when God withdraws his mercy. 
and he can't handle it. Better for me to die than to live. And then verse 9 to 11, I really like 9 to 11. Then God said to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? It's right for me to be angry even to death. But the Lord said, you've had pity on the plant for which you've not labored nor made it grow, which came up in a night and perished in a night. And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which are more than 120,000 persons who cannot discern between their right hand and their left and much livestock? What a deep and wonderful lesson there for Jonah and for all of us. You know, God in his pity, he has pity for all the lost people in our world, all of them, even in heathen lands, folks. Lands that don't worship as we do, don't understand the Bible like we do, don't understand Jesus as Savior. God, in his mercy, is laboring for their salvation right now, which is, I believe, why Jesus hasn't come yet. There's a lot of people to be labored for that can be saved. He's trying to save as many people as possible in these people groups around our world that haven't been reached. And maybe Jesus hasn't even been preached, but God is working in some way for their salvation through his Spirit. And God says to Jonah, you have pity for this gourd, <laughs> for this gourd which just got destroyed. Then you have over 120,000 people who as lost in sin as lost can be, worshiping other gods. And so in God's own gentle way, he shows Jonah his sin, his lack of love, his lack of compassion and concern for people. Lost people matter to God, and they should matter to us. Our lives shouldn't be so filled with so many things that we don't think about people around us and whether they can be saved or not and do our part to aid them and move them towards salvation. And this brings us to the second prophet we need to talk about today, and that's the Apostle Paul. Now, last week, uh, Jose spent some time in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, and I'm going to just spend a little bit of time leading up to 13 in that myself here today. In 1 Corinthians 12, Paul spends a lot of time here on spiritual gifts of the church and the diversity of those gifts. And then we look at verse 4, chapter 12 and verse 4. It says, there are diversities of gifts but the same spirit. And there are diverse, the differences of ministries but the same Lord. And there are diversities of activities but it's the same God who works all in all all given by the same Lord, even though they're quite diverse. We do very, very different things in the church, and yet it's the same Lord motivating us. And then verse 8 to 10, Paul covers some other things. He says that it's given the word of wisdom. One person is given wisdom through the Spirit, and another the word of knowledge through the same Spirit, another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healings by the same Spirit, to another the working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another discerning of spirits, to another different kinds of tongues, to another the interpretation of tongues. Now, you know, before I go on, I'd like to mention here, we talk about tongues here today, and, and uh, you know, we have a lot of confusion in our, in, throughout Christendom about this subject today. And uh, many feel that the glossolalia that's talked today, where it's not a known tongue, it doesn't have to be a known tongue, glossolalia can be an intelligible, an unintelligible language. It can be unintelligible languages, and yet still it is the work of the Spirit, they say. No, no, Dr. Hazel, Michael Hazel's father, Gerhard Hazel, taught me in seminary, and he has a book that came out some years ago 
uh, called Speaking in Tongues. You might want to pick that up sometime. An excellent book on the subject. And, and what really convinced me that this cannot be, it cannot be that when Paul speaking, of, when he talks about tongues, speaking in tongues, that he could be talking about unintelligible languages. What convinced me that cannot be is what Dr. Hazel brought out in his book that there is no instance, not one, folks, in any literature outside the Bible, in that time when the Bible was written, all of the, all of the Greek languages, all the papyri, all of the things that you could find, all of the literature, period, outside of the Bible, there is not one instance of people speaking in ecstatic, unintelligible languages. Not one. Paul would have had to coin his own term <laughs> for it to be true what they're saying today. And I don't believe that happened. I don't think you do either. He didn't coin his own term. He's talking about speaking intelligible languages. We're talking about tongues. And that's what they did in the Bible in the book of Acts as we just read in our quarterly just recently. So God knows the gifts that we can best use. And given our personality, our educational background, and our natural talents, he knows how we're wired up. He knows the ones that we can match up with. It matches up with who we really are. He gives us those gifts. And Paul spends considerable space in chapter 12 showing that all the gifts are necessary in verse 21. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. Well, of course the eye can't say to the hand, I have no need of you, because you don't help the body see, I have no need of you. Body is a lot more than just seeing. It's hearing. It's tasting. It's using our hands and working and doing things, handling things. It's a lot of other things. All the parts of the body are necessary, and you wouldn't want to be without any of them. You know, I have been blessed to have a body that doesn't have but one defect. <laughs> and you wouldn't see that defect and to look at me. But yeah, there is one thing in my body that's not exactly like most of yours probably. And that's that I am colorblind. <laughs> I didn't know it. As I grew up, I didn't understand the nature of colorblindness. And I argued the point for years. I'm not colorblind. And yet people would tell me I was colorblind because I would say something was brown and it might have been green. Or I would say something was green and it might have been a shade of red. And, and I would have said it was, it was blue and it was purple. And, and all these things, I, but I'd say, I see different colors. I see green. I see red. I didn't see everything the same. And I thought that colorblindness was when you just didn't see any colors. And so I had to take the colorblindness test three times when I was a teenager before I was convinced that I must be colorblind because <laughs> you know how the colorblindness test is. You're supposed to be able to see the numbers in those spots. You're supposed to see numbers in there, and I couldn't see them. And so they said, well, if you could see the right colors, then you could see those numbers, and you're not seeing those colors. <laughs> and so I'm colorblind. So all through my life, it has an effect. I use my wife a lot to tell me if the tie goes with the shirt and those kind of things. And, uh, you know, it just has an impact all through your life. I often wonder what it's like to see the world the way you see it, to see colors the way you see them, what it would be like. Different. I'm sure it's different. All the spiritual gifts are necessary, just like all the parts of the body are necessary, and in the same way that 
we feel a lack if any part of our body doesn't work right. The church feels a lack if the spiritual gifts are missing and its members. Chapter 13, verse 1. Now turning to 13. Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels but have not love, I have become sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. Sounding brass, probably a gong or a trumpet, Paul's referring to here, refers to a resounding instrument that can make a loud noise and give an appearance of great importance, but it's actually a lifeless instrument. There's no life in a trumpet. When someone lays it on the shelf, there's no sound, there's no nothing, there's no life. It lays there dead. He talks about a tinkling cymbal, same thing. No life, but a lot of noise without love. We aren't breathing eternal life into anybody without love. In verse 2, and though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. So no matter what gift I have, whether it's preaching or evangelism or teaching or prophecy or healing, knowledge, faith, I can move mountains if I don't have love. I'm really nothing. Paul says I'm nothing. There can be other motives for doing things like in verse 3 even. In verse 3, though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I get my body to be burned and have not love, it profits me nothing. You know, there can be other motives. If it's to earn our salvation, it's worthless. If we do it to earn salvation, it's worthless. And people in Old Testament times sacrificed children to Moloch. Did God honor this? Oh, no. Calls it an abomination. Because it wasn't love for your child that motivated him to do that. Absolutely not based on love. I can become vegan and never touch cheese again the rest of my life. If I don't have love, I'm nothing. There's no work we can perform. No works. No works of any value unless we have love. Love is that indispensable quality, Paul's saying. And then we turn now to the last prophet, the prophet John. 1 John 4, verse 7. Let's turn to that together. 1 John 4, verse 7. The disciple John here says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. So we're called to love one another. To love one another. Love is of God. Notice, love is of God. All real love comes from God. We can't produce it. We can't manufacture that on our own. It comes from God. It's inspired by him. It's motivated by him. In the Garden of Eden, in Genesis 3:8, what happened? Adam sins, and the Bible says he ran. Him and Eve ran from God and hid. And then verse 9 says, God called him. God called to Adam. Where are you? God called. God came. God made the effort. God put forth the effort. And if that hadn't happened, folks, there'd been no salvation today. Because Adam would have continued hiding from God. There was nothing within Adam. Now that his nature has become sinful, there's nothing within him 
that can do anything other than that but run away in fear until God comes back and bestows forgiveness on him till God makes the effort. So that's something to think about. You know, we need to be thankful because if he didn't do that, we'd all be lost. If his spirit didn't keep speaking to us to do things like pray and study the Bible and witness, we'd all be lost. We'd all be in a state of hopelessness. We'd be in Adam's position in the garden. You'd be afraid of him, and so you'd stay away from him, and so there would be no prayer, no Bible study, and no witnessing. And then we go to verse 9. In this, the love of God was manifest toward us that God has sent his only begotten son into the world that we might live through him. That's sacrificial, isn't it? Doesn't get any more sacrificial than that. And in verse 10, this is love. In this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to the propitiation for our sins. Not that we loved God. We didn't deserve anything. Not that we loved him first. He loved us first. Our nature's evil. Our natures are sinful. All of us have sinned and we slap God in the face, but he loves us in spite of ourselves. God comes after us, loves us so much, that he gave his son for us. That's just the ultimate sacrifice. Any of you that have children know exactly what I'm talking about. That's all he could give. All he could give. The greatest sacrifice. And in verse 11, Behold, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. This is how we ought to love each other. Give of ourselves for each other. Give our time for each other for outreach. Give our time for those outside. Give our time for those inside. Nurture. Give our time. Give our talents. Give our spiritual gifts for each other. Give our tithes. Return our tithes, I should say. The 10% belongs to him, and of course it's required. It's his. It's not even ours to deal with. Offerings, on the other hand, that's of our free will. Or do they reflect sacrificial giving? Do they reflect a heart that's truly grateful for what God has given for our salvation? When we give our tithes and offerings, we're essentially giving part of our lives for him. We've gone out and we've worked. We've taken our time. We've earned this money. And now we're taking this money, which represents the time. It represents life giving back to God, giving it back to God for the salvation of humanity. That's what it's all about. It gets used not for something personal, paying for a vacation or utility bill or a mortgage payment. It's used to help win souls, help people find salvation. Does my giving pattern reflect the kind of sacrificial giving that we see in God in sacrificing his son for us? That's a thought for us to all think about this morning. In conclusion, I think all three prophets, all three of them got the message about us having God's love as being this indispensable quality that we all need. I think Jonah got the message. I think he got the message. I think he was the author of the book of Jonah, and I think he wrote it in third person to tell us that though he was a prophet, 
He missed the boat because he didn't love people. And he wanted us to know the gentle way that God worked with him to show him the error of his ways. And God took away that gourd which he'd given him to protect him from that heat, took away his merciful protection, and Jonah couldn't handle it. It got to the point Jonah looked in the face of God and spouted off, it's better for me to die than go on living. I wish I was dead. And then God gently remonstrated him by asking him, shouldn't I have pity on these people in this heathen city of Jonah who are just as lost as they can be? Jonah got the message, and I think in his repentant state, he wrote the book of Jonah in third person. It was all about his own experience. That's what I believe about the book of Jonah. And we know from the writings of John, the writings of Paul, that they definitely got this message. And my prayer this morning is we all get that message. And no matter what our talents or spiritual gifts that we might possess, whatever good works that we perform, it really gets down to one thing. Do we have Christ-like love in our hearts that's reflected in how we treat each other? This love is the indispensable quality for a Christian.